0: What would you like? Could I get a rum and diet Coke, please? Yes. This is B Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm in a bar. Not one of those hipster places with people lined up around the block, but a good old bar with dim lighting, brick walls, football on TV. It's the kind of place where you can get a strong drink and disappear. And it seems the appropriate location to bring you a show about coping. That's what this edition of B-Side is all about. The things we do to deal with the unexpected, unpleasant, sometimes miserable parts of life. I'm here with Jane. Jane Doe? Jane Doe. You're a bartender. That I am. And do you
1: deal with coping? Uh, I would say that much more than coping, I deal with avoidance. But uh, I mean, people pretend that they're coping at a bar when they have problems with you know work or school and roommates a lot of people when they're
0: having a bad day their first inclination is man I need a drink
1: so that's what I'm here for
0: and and the reason we're not using your real name and we're not naming the location of this bar is because people tell you stuff oh yeah I know a lot about everybody
1: and it's I mean it's true people have always referred to bartenders as the poor man's psychologist
0: and yeah I get a lot of dirty secrets. And as an added bonus, you have a degree in psychology. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Um, The most qualified poor man psychologist. We were just talking about how people come here not necessarily to cope, but to avoid. And we have a story. Our first story on the show comes from Claudine Zapp. She's a longtime B-side contributor And uh, she found that the best place to cope or, I guess, more distract with, with a loss is a shopping mall rather than a bar.
2: Grief has a high price. That's what I was thinking the day I walked into the shoe department at Neiman Marcus. I don't know how I got there. My feet just took me. It was after my first session with a grief counselor. My sister had died a few months before to cancer, and I'd been told that seeing a grief counselor would be helpful i never been to a therapist before, but it seemed like a good time to start. When my sister was diagnosed, one of my very first instincts was to shop. At first I thought it was just me, but then I realized my mom was doing it too, and so was my best friend, my sister's boyfriend, my sister's best friend, my sister's best friend's mother, my husband, my husband's father. We were all doing it. None of us could cure her cancer, but we sure could cure the shopping itch with a good dose of retail therapy. My sister was showered with gifts. Books, bath products, slippers, so many stuffed animals that she had them all banished from her house. More books, pajamas, 800-thread count sheets. I bought her things I always wanted to get her. Jewelry from Tiffany, bags from Kate Spade, and Prada shoes. She barely left her house, much less her bed. But when she did, usually for a doctor's appointment or chemo session, on came the Pradas, the Kate Spade bag, the jewelry. Because she left the house so rarely, she kept the Pradas slip-on shoes by her bedside, and sometimes she wore them around the house. My sister loved those shoes. We loved her, and still, we shopped. In my first session with the counselor, she told me that I should do anything that would make me feel good. I told this to a good friend going through a divorce. Turns out her therapist advised her that she shouldn't quit both her smoking and marriage. She had to choose one. Crisis is not an opening for self-improvement. This is not the right time to resolve to shop less, smoke less, drink less. You can always overcome addiction later once you're no longer overcome by grief. Trust me, it doesn't sound right, but it feels right. In a department store, I found my escape. There is no time, no worries, and certainly no grief. At Neiman Marcus, there's not even a cash register in sight. Such crass matters are handled somewhere in a back room, away from the customer. Me. I didn't notice that I was there until I was standing right in front of the display. A salesman materialized by my side. I pointed to a pair of patent leather pumps and told him my size. He knew better and brought me a different pair. They fit perfectly. I handed him a credit card. He handed me a bag with the new Prada shoes. The transaction took less than 10 minutes. My grief will last a lifetime.
0: That was besides Claudine Zapp. She lives in San Francisco. And we're here at a bar with a bartender named Jane, who also happens to be a former psych major. What types of things do people tell you about? Well, I would have to say that
1: the most common is romantic troubles. Yet you know, There's no end to the... My girlfriend, my boyfriend, cheating, thieving, nonsense uh, that we all go through. Is it hard to hear the relationship stuff? It gets tedious sometimes. And more than anything, it's that when people want to talk about their problems, I want to be able to give them advice. And knowing that people won't take perfectly good advice because they really just need to vent
0: is kind of frustrating sometimes. Our next story is also sort of shopping-related, okay. and it comes from Rob Sachs. And, and he has this problem of the, the things that he cares about just fade away, literally.
3: For me, a T-shirt isn't just an article of clothing. It's something that touches on my very essence. Less tacky than a bumper sticker and more subtle than a baseball cap. My tees show the world who I am, where I've come from, and what I love
4: your t-shirts are part of your personality they're like an extension of you
3: that's my wife anna ever since our first date she's been a fan of my collection of vintage tees
4: they're one of a kind unique they've been grown over the years (laughs) spent a lot of time maturing in thrift stores around the country much like yourself
3: it's true. My whole life I've been obsessed with thrift store teas. I love the idea of going to bare stores with fluorescent lighting and digging away to find lost gems that I could usually purchase for less than the price of lunch. I've even developed a complex system for sorting through a rack. My first criteria is that I should have some personal connection to the tea. So, although most shirts are from other people's marathons or bar mitzvahs or unions, there should be something that speaks to me also. Second, style. I'm looking for muted and faded colors, maybe like that 80s burgundy or navy blue. A big no-no are those loud and obnoxious 90s neon colors. Ugh. My best tees are the ones that celebrate a beloved event in history. These shirts have the amazing ability to transcend boundaries between strangers. For instance, my vintage 1983 Philadelphia 76ers World Championship t-shirt earns me high fives from random people on the street. It's crazy. It's like somehow I'm a hero just for wearing my shirt. My mom, though, she still doesn't quite get it.
5: Usually they're the wrong size and they're all worn out, and I don't think that they are the most attractive looking thing that you could be wearing.
3: In fact, many times in high school, my tees would inexplicably go missing, in which case I'd have to conduct a search and rescue mission. Have I or have I not ever had to dig them out of the trash can?
5: I guess maybe one or two.
3: But as much as I hate to admit it, my mother actually has a point. Thrift store tees are fragile things with limited lifespans. My wife Anna knows this all too well.
4: There comes a point where... One of two things happens. Either your T-shirt is completely threadbare and falling off and you can see your chest hair popping through, or it's just entirely too small because you've outgrown it. Perhaps the
3: hardest thing is letting go. Some of these tees have literally grown up with me. So if I can't wear it, i found that the next best thing to do is to give it to someone who appreciates my history with it, even if it's just worn as a nightgown or undershirt.
4: Well, when I get one of your thrift store t-shirts handed down to me, it's great because then I get something that's all broken in, and you still get to enjoy it because you get to see it on me. I'm actually wearing one right now.
3: Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) But as amazing as Anna looks wearing my old tees, there's some that I refuse to let go, some that have just way too much sentimental value. The cruel irony is that although at this stage in their life, these tees are extremely fragile, they're also at the peak of their comfort. Their shape conforms to my body, and the threads are softer than any teddy bear or plush toy you can imagine. It's as if the shirt is clinging on to me for one last warm embrace. The end usually begins with an innocuous rip, but in this debilitated state, the rip soon spreads to a gash, and from there, all out tears. Seams try their best to withstand the pressure, but before long, it's too late. The shirt has lost its form, reduced to mere swaths of fabric. It's time to let go. It's time to throw it away. But you know, after going through this heart-wrenching process countless times, I've come to realize that sometimes losing a tee is not altogether a bad thing. There's new space in my dresser drawer, new parts of my personality to promote, and a new reason to drive out to the thrift store to hunt once again for my new favorite t-shirt.
0: This story was produced by Rob Sachs, who lives in Washington, D.C., with his wife and his T-shirt collection. This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith. And this edition of the show is coming to you from a bar. What uh, the person sitting on the bar stool next to me likes to call an oasis of coping. So Rob's story got me thinking about the tons of clothes that I have hung on to for years and years and years. I will never wear them again. They will never fit me again people hold on to
1: sentimental things. And I, th- I think what I tried to do is that if I haven't worn it in a year,
0: it goes away. A lot of us might need to do a little bit of spring cleaning, but for some people it goes to another level. And you might never know from someone's outward appearance that they have a problem with hoarding or cluttering. And I think these are actually technical terms. Yes, I would say hoarding and hoarding definitely. Today we hear from one such person who has struggled with clutter for decades and one unusual method she's developed to help her let go of her belongings. Here's independent producer Elizabeth Chur.
6: Melody's life, like her house, is complicated. Her studio apartment is so full of stuff that the only place to sit is the toilet seat. She sleeps on a mat in a clearing by the front door. It's the only floor space large enough for her to stretch out. Her bathtub is piled high with bags of clothes, and she hasn't taken a shower at home for years. I recorded 35 hours of tape with Melody. In this short piece, you'll only hear about some of her complications. I can only hope to tell you a fraction of her possessions, her history, her struggles. Take this slice and multiply by 100, and perhaps you'll have an idea of what she faces.
5: This is my glitter notebook. I have six pages of glitter. These are silver snowflakey sequins, silver stars, big silver stars, little...
6: Melody has a complex mix of problems that create the perfect storm for her hoarding condition.
5: Then on this page, we've got...
6: She has obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is common among people who hoard. She also has a brain injury, which affects her short-term memory. And she has attention deficit disorder, which makes it hard for her to stay focused on a task.
5: I've got hanging on here, like all the cup measurers, spatulas, measuring spoon, measuring spoon, measuring spoon, measuring spoon, lots of measuring spoons. The hoarding kicked in in my teens. I would be walking along and something on the ground would catch my eye. You know, like if somebody dropped an earring or if somebody dropped a piece of jewelry, I'd pick it up and I'd put it in my pocket It was a very gradual, gradual process, but at some point it crossed some other line, meaning, like, you can be fat for a while, but then one day you're obese.
6: Melody is 48 years old. She's held a long string of low-wage jobs, most of which she was fired from because she couldn't work fast enough. She's been on disability for the last 10 years. Whenever I visit her apartment, Melody has to move aside stacks of papers and bags just so she can open the front door. Stay! Once I'm inside, she leads me down a foot-wide path that looks like a goat trail.
5: See, it wants to roll over. You give them the stay command, and they just keep rolling over.
6: She's lived in this crowded apartment for 20 years. Tall shelving units line every wall. They reach almost to the ceiling, and boxes cover every square inch. Standing in a dark, narrow aisle between shelves... I feel like I'm standing in a shadowy alley, peering up at skyscrapers. Melody has developed some innovative ways to accommodate her disabilities. She once had a large couch that she ended up using as a shelving unit, even though she knew it was a totally inefficient use of space. She just couldn't bring herself to get rid of it, so she figured out a clever compromise.
5: What I did was I cut a swatch of the fabric from the backside of the couch And I stapled it to a 3x5 card, and then I wrote down all the information about it. Seven-foot couch reduced to 3x5 card. Within about an hour, I got the saw out, I disassembled the whole thing, and I hauled the whole thing down
6: out onto the street. Melody used this technique on some of her other things, too. She had 75 pairs of pants that she hardly ever wore. So
5: I took a belt loop from each pair of pants, and I stapled it to a 3x5 card. The process of paring down is like really, really hard because I don't ever want to get rid of anything. Like right now, I'm stroking fondly this little swatch and I'm
6: like, oh, I remember those pants like it was yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Besides the three by five cards, Melody invented other ways to navigate the sea of chaos in her apartment. She constructed a wooden loft with built-in cubby holes and shelves to organize essentials such as her telephone, important papers, and medications. But all around that, Melody continued to accumulate things.
5: You know, for years, my landlord would come over, and it just got to the point where, he, you know, he'd see me in the hallway with huge armloads of stuff, and I'm not going down the stairs, I'm going up the stairs. And the poor guy is just beside himself, and he's just saying, you can't have all that stuff in your apartment. It's a fire hazard.
6: Melody said her landlord didn't know what to do. He wound up bringing the problem to a dispute resolution organization.
5: On one level, it's not a dispute. It's not like I disagree with my landlords about it. No, this is not a fire hazard. No, it's not dangerous. No, I'm not blocking the fire egress exit. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not like I want to live this way they kept making fabulous suggestions like, well, just take everything you own and throw it out. And by the time they'd suggested things like that for the billionth time, I was
6: literally sobbing uncontrollably. Melody said that people often suggest quick fixes for her problem. But she's found that paring down her belongings without just filling up the space with other things is a long, slow process.
5: I believe that in my landlord's minds, this is something that you just bite the bullet, you throw everything out, and you start over. And for the problem that I have, that's the worst thing that you can do because that's like binge dieting. You starve yourself until you can't stand it, and then you can never maintain your weight when you do
6: that. Melody's binge diet happened in one day. Her landlord and all the different agencies that were helping her arranged for a large dumpster to be parked on the street outside her apartment.
5: All of my cognitive landmarks were demolished. I mean, in two hours, they literally undid years and years of me working on trying to sort, which is one of my weakest areas.
6: That day was a turning point in Melody's life almost as if her life after that was A.D., after the dumpster. That first couple
5: months after the dumpster, I mean, I just started sleeping on the street because it was so overwhelmingly distressing to be here.
6: Melody said that without her loft and her other organizational systems, her apartment became a completely chaotic environment. For a while, she was able to limit her hoarding, but eventually she began bringing more and more things home from thrift stores and neighborhood garbage cans. It's been more than five years since the dumpster incident. Melody has spent most of her time since then trying to explain her problem to social workers. She keeps a three-ring binder filled with articles about hoarding and cluttering, support groups, and documentation of her efforts to clean up her apartment. If Melody won the lottery today, She said she'd hire a professional organizer, buy a digital camera, and get a full-time assistant to help her catalog the things she intended to get rid of, like a high-tech version of her 3x5 index cards.
5: It doesn't matter what decision I make. It matters that the decision is remembered by me. If you absolutely think something should be thrown out, take a photo. So like I can go, oh my God, that was so gross. Thank you. <laughs> you know? Because when somebody comes up to me and goes, I threw out your blah, blah, blah. My memory of it was when it was fresh and brand new. And so I'm not remembering what was thrown out. I'm remembering what it was when I got it.
6: This is the crux of her problem. Every item in Melody's house represents a day, a moment, a person. Throw out an object. And she feels like she's throwing out the memory also. But even though she faces some big challenges, she hasn't given up hope.
5: If I just keep showing up to my counseling appointments, if I just keep trying to explain to people what my difficulty is, like maybe I'll live long enough for someone to get it. It's a little bit like having cancer in that you're trying to live long enough for the cure to be discovered.
6: In the meantime, Melody is still waiting. In one of her last interviews, she said she's definitely losing ground. The goat trail in her apartment is getting narrower, and landslides of boxes and papers have covered it over in some places. As the winter sun sets, a single fluorescent bulb casts a ghostly, harsh light on a corner of the room where Melody sits on the floor. Keys. See? They're pretty. She's trying to stuff handfuls of antique keys back into a plastic jar. They are keys to doors that no longer exist. Three. Four.
5: Okay, now I lost count. Like, I can't even count up to five before I lose my place. (laughs) Okay, okay, (laughs) It's only funny if it's not happening to you. <laughs> okay. One. Two. Three.
0: That piece was produced by Elizabeth Cher, who had help from Jay Allison. It was originally produced for the public radio website transom.org, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Tamara Keith, and I am in a bar with a bartender named Jane, Jane Doe, for the purposes of this show. Um, Do people ever come in and talk to you about their pets?
1: Occasionally. um, There's a few that really need to talk about their kitty. Sure. Why do you think that is? I think that a lot of people at this point aren't married and don't have children, and they transfer that love and affection to
0: animals, which is completely understandable that's where our next story starts with a woman who ends up with a cat that she loves very much this comes from
7: contributor christy birch after living alone for a decade i decided i was ready for a roommate just not a human so i thought well i'll get a cat and then it hit me oh no i'm single i'm almost 40 and i'm getting a cat Luckily, a friend of mine said I wouldn't really be a cat lady unless I had multiple cats. That made sense. So I headed to the SPCA, and there she was. Molly was a sad, underweight tortoiseshell kitty. She looked up at me with her little crossed eye, and I knew I was going to take her home. Like any relationship, the beginning was great. But after about a month, I started noticing big yellow spots on the guest bed and an odor in the room. So I raced her to the vet. I was relieved when Dr. Thompson diagnosed Molly with a urinary tract infection and prescribed an antibiotic. But just a few days later, Molly expanded her targets to piles of laundry and stacks of paper. I'd be driving my car, smell that smell, and realize that Molly had nailed my pant leg before I put the pants on. I'd let pieces of the newspaper fall to the floor, and find them drenched later. I'd forget to close the bedroom door, and she'd strike. This time, Dr. Thompson explained that cats often stop using the box because of stress caused by a change in their environment. Apparently, it's pretty easy to rock a cat's world. Dr. Thompson went through a checklist of violations. Had I moved the litter box? No. Change brands of kitty litter? No. Had a baby? No. But then I thought of something. Molly was only stressed out when she was standing over newspaper or fabric. She didn't go anywhere else. That's when Dr. Thompson speculated that Molly's problem could be a tactile issue. So she recommended scattering some adult diapers around the floor. Maybe Molly would go on the diaper instead of my laundry. And Dr. Thompson said that if all else failed, we could give Molly an antidepressant. Prozac, most likely. You've got to be kidding. No, she said, lots of people are giving their pets Prozac to alleviate stress. Get rid of the stress and you can stop the bad behavior. Well, the only thing weirder than buying adult diapers for my cat was giving her Prozac. Plus, so far, the problem was bearable. Molly didn't go on anything I couldn't wash or throw away. And what if Prozac didn't work? Then I'd have to consider having her put to sleep. I couldn't bear that. I decided to try every other solution ever suggested to me. I bought a box of Depends and placed a diaper next to each of her three litter boxes. I confined her to one room with the litter box to retrain her to use it. I created a file on my computer called .doc and recorded each crime to see if there was a pattern. I even tried talk therapy. I told Molly she was beautiful and that I loved her. And I praised her every time she went in the box, even though cats don't respond to praise. It couldn't hurt. It didn't help, either. And if the volume of liquid was any evidence of the level of her emotion, then she was peevish when she went on the dirty laundry in the basement, and she was just short of devastated when she went on my bed while I was in it. Finally, one Saturday afternoon about a year after the trouble began, I came home from Target and sat down on the sofa, in a puddle. Molly had finally gone on something I couldn't wash or throw away. That did it. I was tired of stepping on adult diapers, and the generic version of Prozac was only $16 a month. I crushed up the first Prozac pill and stirred it into her fancy feast on September 1, 2004 and she hasn't missed the litter box since. Not once. I'm still stunned. People ask me if Prozac has made Molly any happier. Well, she sure is happy to take it. The second she hears me open the prescription bottle, she knows it's time for her fancy feast, and she comes running. My little junkie. At my last vet visit, I asked if I could get a liquid form of Prozac. A few days later, the vet's assistant left a message on my answering machine. The liquid flavor that Prozac comes in for humans is licorice, and so that probably wouldn't work for cats. But we could get it in a cat-acceptable flavor. Here's what we have. Bacon, beef, cheese, chicken, fish, liver, lamb, or tuna. Call us back with the flavor Molly would like. I chose the chicken.
0: That was Christy Birch, who continues to live in peace with her cat.
6: I'm just mad about saffron.
4: Saffron's mad about me. I'm just mad about saffron. She's just mad about me. They call me mellow yellow. Quite
5: rightly.
4: They call me mellow
5: yellow. Quite rightly.
0: That's all for B Side. Our show was produced by Renee Gutel with contributions from Claudine Zapp, Rob Sachs, Elizabeth Turr, and Christy Birch. We also had help from Jane Doe here, our uh, bartender, in the Unnamed Mystery Bar. I'm Tamara Keith, B-side Senior Producer. If you want to learn more about B-side and our crew, please visit our website, bsideradio.org. That's the letter B S I D E radio.org. You can also get information about our podcasts, and we sure hope you'll subscribe. Thanks for listening.
4: They call me metal yellow. <laughs>
6: Line. A wind of a loss of tennis oh.